Chapter Thirty Three of Barnaby Rudge, A Tale of the Riots of Eighty. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Barnaby Rudge, A Tale of the Riots of Eighty by Charles Dickens. Chapter Thirty Three. One wintry evening, early in the year of our Lord one thousand seven hundred and eighty. A keen north wind arose as it grew dark, and night came on with black and dismal looks. A bitter storm of sleet, sharp, dense, and icy cold, swept the wet streets and rattled on the trembling windows. Signboards, shaken past endurance in their creaking frames, fell crashing on the pavement. Old tottering chimneys reeled and staggered in the blast, and many a steeple rocked again that night, as though the earth were troubled. It was not a time for those who could by any means get light and warmth to brave the fury of the weather. In coffee-houses of the better sort, guests crowded round the fire, forgot to be political, and told each other with a secret gladness that the blast grew fiercer every minute. Each humble tavern by the waterside had its group of uncouth figures round the hearth, who talked of vessels foundering at sea and all hands lost related many a dismal tale of shipwreck and drowned men, and hoped that some they knew were safe, and shook their heads in doubt. In private dwellings children clustered near the blaze, listening with timid pleasure to tales of ghosts and goblins, and tall figures clad in white, standing by bedsides, and people who had gone to sleep in old churches, and being overlooked, had found themselves alone there at the dead hour of the night until they shuddered at the thought of the dark rooms upstairs, yet loved to hear the wind moan, too, and hoped it would continue bravely. From time to time these happy indoor people stopped to listen, or one held up his finger and cried, Hark! And then, above the rumbling in the chimney, and the fast pattering on the glass, was heard a wailing, rushing sound, which shook the walls as though a giant's hand were on them then a hoarse roar as if the sea had risen, then such a whirl and tumult that the air seemed mad, and then, with a lengthened howl, the waves of wind swept on, and left a moment's interval of rest. Cheerily, though there were none abroad to see it, shone the maypole light that evening. Blessings on the red, deep, ruby, glowing red, old curtain of the window, blending into one rich stream of brightness, fire and candle, meat, drink, and company, and gleaming like a jovial eye upon the bleak waste out of doors. Within, what carpet like its crunching sand, what music merry as its crackling logs, what perfume like its kitchen's dainty breath, what weather genial as its hearty warmth! Blessings on the old house! How sturdily it stood! How did the vexed wind chafe and roar about its stalwart roof? How did it pant and strive with its wide chimneys, which still poured forth from their hospitable throats great clouds of smoke, and puffed defiance in its face? How, above all, did it drive and rattle at the casement, emulous to extinguish that cheerful glow which would not be put down and seemed the brighter for the conflict? The profusion, too, the rich and lavish bounty of that goodly tavern, it was not enough that one fire roared and sparkled at its spacious hearth, in the tiles which paved and compassed it. Five hundred flickering fires burned brightly also. 
It was not enough that one red curtain shut the wild night out, and shed its cheerful influence on the room. In every saucepan lid, and candlestick, and vessel of copper, brass, or tin that hung upon the walls, were countless ruddy hangings, flashing and gleaming with every motion of the blaze, and offering, let the eye wander where it might, interminable vistas of the same rich colour. The old oak wainscoting, the beams, the chairs, the seats, reflected it in a deep, dull glimmer. There were fires and red curtains in the very eyes of the drinkers, in their buttons, in their liquor, in the pipes they smoked. Mr. Willet sat in what had been his accustomed place five years before, with his eyes on the eternal boiler, and had sat there since the clock struck eight, giving no other signs of life than breathing with a loud and constant snore, though he was wide awake and from time to time putting his glass to his lips, or knocking the ashes out of his pipe, and filling it anew. It was now half-past ten. Mr. Cobb and Long Phil Parks were his companions as of old, and for two mortal hours and a half none of the company had pronounced one word. Whether people, by dint of sitting together in the same place and the same relative positions, and doing exactly the same things for a great many years, acquire a sixth sense, or some unknown power of influencing each other, which serves them in its stead, is a question for philosophy to settle. But certain it is, that old John Willet, Mr. Parks, and Mr. Cobb, were one and all firmly of opinion that they were very jolly companions, rather choice spirits than otherwise, that they looked at each other every now and then as if there were a perpetual interchange of ideas going on among them, that no man considered himself or his neighbour by any means silent and that each of them nodded occasionally when he caught the eye of another, as if he would say, "'You have expressed yourself extremely well, sir, in relation to that sentiment, and I quite agree with you.' The room was so very warm, the tobacco so very good, and the fire so very soothing, that Mr. Willet, by degrees, began to doze. But as he had perfectly acquired, by dint of long habit, the art of smoking in his sleep, and as his breathing was pretty much the same, awake or asleep, saving that in the latter case he sometimes experienced a slight difficulty in respiration, such as a carpenter meets with when he is planing and comes to a knot, neither of his companions was aware of the circumstance, until he met with one of these impediments, and was obliged to try again. "'Johnny's dropped off,' said Mr. Parks, in a whisper. "'Fast as a top,' said Mr. Cobb. Neither of them said any more, until Mr. Willet came to another knot, one of surpassing obduracy, which bade fair to throw him into convulsions, but which he got over at last without waking by an effort quite superhuman. "'He sleeps uncommon hard,' said Mr. Cobb. Mr. Parks, who was possibly a hard sleeper himself, replied with some disdain, "'Not a bit on it,' and directed his eyes towards a handbill pasted over the chimney-piece, which was decorated at the top with a woodcut, representing a youth of tender years running away very fast, with a bundle over his shoulder at the end of a stick, and, to carry out the idea, a finger-post and a milestone beside him. Mr. Cobb likewise turned his eyes in the same direction, and surveyed the placard, as if that were the first time he had ever beheld it. Now, this was a document which Mr. Willet had himself indicted on the disappearance of his son Joseph acquainting the nobility and gentry, and the public in general, with the circumstances of his having left his home, 
describing his dress and appearance, and offering a reward of five pounds to any person or persons who would pack him up and return him safely to the Maypole at Chigwell, or lodge him in any of His Majesty's jails until such time as his father should come and claim him. In this advertisement, Mr. Willet had obstinately persisted, despite the advice and entreaties of his friends, in describing his son as a young boy, and furthermore as being from eighteen inches to a couple of feet shorter than he really was. Two circumstances which perhaps accounted, in some degree, for its never having been productive of any other effect than the transmission to Chigwell at various times, and at a vast expense, of some five-and-forty runaways, varying from six years old to twelve. Mr. Cobb and Mr. Parks looked mysteriously at this composition, at each other, and at old John. From the time he had pasted it up with his own hands, Mr. Willet had never by word or sign alluded to the subject, or encouraged any one else to do so. Nobody had the least notion what his thoughts or opinions were, connected with it, whether he remembered it or forgot it, whether he had any idea that such an event had ever taken place. Therefore, even while he slept, no one ventured to refer to it in his presence, and for such sufficient reasons, these his chosen friends were silent now. Mr. Willet had got by this time into such a complication of knots, that it was perfectly clear he must wake or die. He chose the former alternative, and opened his eyes. "'If he don't come in five minutes,' said John, "'I shall have supper without him.' The antecedent of this pronoun had been mentioned for the last time at eight o'clock. Messrs. Parks and Cobb, being used to this style of conversation, replied without difficulty that to be sure Solomon was very late, and they wondered what had happened to detain him. "'He aren't blown away, I suppose,' said Parks. "'It's enough to carry a man of his figure off his legs, and easy too. Do you hear it? It blows great guns indeed. There'll be many a crash in the forest to-night, I reckon, and many a broken branch upon the ground to-morrow.' "'It won't break anything in the maypole, I take it, sir,' returned old John. "'Let it try.' I give it leave. What's that? The wind, cried Parks. It's howling like a Christian, and has been all night long. Did you ever, sir, asked John, after a minute's contemplation, hear the wind say, Maypole? Why, what man ever did, said Parks. Nor ahoy, perhaps, added John. "'No, nor that neither.' "'Very good, sir,' said Mr. Willet, perfectly unmoved. "'Then, if that was the wind just now, and you wait a little time without speaking, you'll hear it say both words, very plain.' Mr. Willet was right. After listening for a few moments, they could clearly hear, above the roar and tumult out of doors, this shout repeated— and that with a shrillness and energy which denoted that it came from some person in great distress or terror. They looked at each other, turned pale, and held their breath. No man stirred. It was in this emergency that Mr. Willet displayed something of that strength of mind and plenitude of mental resource which rendered him the admiration of all his friends and neighbours. After looking at Messrs. Parks and Cobb for some time in silence, 
he clapped his two hands to his cheeks, and sent forth a roar which made the glasses dance and rafters ring, a long, sustained, discordant bellow that rolled onward with the wind, and startling every echo made the night a hundred times more boisterous, a deep, loud, dismal bray that sounded like a human gong. Then, with every vein in his head and face swollen with the great exertion, and his countenance suffused with a lively purple, he drew a little nearer to the fire, and turning his back upon it, said, with dignity, "'If that's any comfort to anybody, they're welcome to it. If it ain't, I'm sorry for em. If either of you two gentlemen likes to go out and see what's the matter, you can. I'm not curious myself.' While he spoke, the cry drew nearer and nearer. Footsteps passed the window. The latch of the door was raised. It opened, was violently shut again, and Solomon Daisy, with a lighted lantern in his hand, and the rain streaming from his disordered dress, dashed into the room. A more complete picture of terror than the little man presented it would be difficult to imagine. The perspiration stood in beads upon his face, his knees knocked together, his every limb trembled, the power of articulation was quite gone, and there he stood, panting for breath, gazing on them with such livid, ashy looks, that they were infected with his fear, though ignorant of its occasion, and, reflecting his dismayed and horror-stricken visage, stared back again without venturing to question him, until old John Willet, in a fit of temporary insanity, made a dive at his cravat, and, seizing him by that portion of his dress, shook him to and fro until his very teeth appeared to rattle in his head. "'Tell us what's the matter, sir?' said John, "'or I'll kill you. Tell us what's the matter, sir, or in another second I'll have your head under the biler. How dare you look like that? Is anybody a-following of you? What do you mean? Say something, or I'll be the death of you, I will.' Mr. Willet, in his frenzy, was so near keeping his word to the very letter, Solomon Daisy's eyes already beginning to roll in an alarming manner, and certain guttural sounds as of a choking man to issue from his throat, that the two bystanders, recovering in some degree, plucked him off his victim by main force, and placed the little clerk of Chigwell in a chair. Directing a fearful gaze all round the room, he implored them in a faint voice to give him some drink and above all to lock the house-door, and close and bar the shutters of the room, without a moment's loss of time. The latter request did not tend to reassure his hearers, or to fill them with the most comfortable sensations. They complied with it, however, with the greatest expedition, and having handed him a bumper of brandy and water, nearly boiling hot, waited to hear what he might have to tell them. "'Oh, Johnny!' said Solomon, shaking him by the hand. "'Oh, Parks!' "'Oh, Tommy Cobb! Why did I leave this house to-night, on the nineteenth of March, of all nights in the year, on the nineteenth of March?' They all drew closer to the fire. Parks, who was nearest to the door, started and looked over his shoulder. Mr. Willet, with great indignation, inquired what the devil he meant by that, and then said, "'God forgive me!' and glanced over his own shoulder and came a little nearer. "'When I left here to-night,' said Solomon Daisy, 
I little thought what day of the month it was. I never gone alone into the church after dark on this day for seven and twenty years. I have heard it said that as we keep our birthdays when we are alive, so the ghosts of dead people who are not easy in their graves keep the day they died upon. How the wind roars! Nobody spoke. All eyes were fastened on Solomon. I might have known, he said, what night it was, by the foul weather. There's no such night now year round as this is, always. I never sleep quietly in my bed on the 19th of March. Go on, said Tom Cobb in a low voice, nor I neither. Solomon Daisy raised his glass to his lips, put it down upon the floor with such a trembling hand that the spoon tinkled in it like a little bell, and continued thus. "'Have I ever said that we are always brought back to this subject in some strange way "'when the nineteenth of this month comes round? "'Do you suppose it was by accident? "'I forgot to wind up the church clock. "'I never forgot it any other time, "'though it is such a clumsy thing that it has to be wound up every day. "'Why should it escape my memory on this day of all others?' "'I made as much haste down there as I could when I went from here, "'but I had to go home first for the keys, "'and the wind and rain being dead against me all the way, "'it was pretty well as much as I could do at times to keep my legs. "'I got there at last, opened the church door, and went in. "'I had not met a soul all the way, "'and you may judge whether it was dull or not. "'Neither of you would bear me company. "'If you could have known what was to come, "'you'd have been in the right.' The wind was so strong that it was as much as I could do to shut the church door by putting my whole weight against it, and even as it was, it burst wide open twice, with such strength that any of you would have sworn, if you had been leaning against it as I was, that somebody was pushing it on the other side. However, I got the key turned, went into the belfry, and wound up the clock, which was very near run down and would have stood stock still in half an hour. As I took up my lantern again to leave the church, it came upon me all at once. This was the 19th of March. It came upon me with a kind of shock, as if a hand had struck the thought upon me forehead. At the very same moment, I heard a voice outside the tower, rising from among the graves. Here old John precipitately interrupted the speaker, and begged that if Mr. Parks, who was seated opposite to him, and was staring directly over his head, saw anything, he would have the goodness to mention it. Mr. Parks apologised, and remarked that he was only listening, to which Mr. Willet angrily retorted that his listening with that kind of expression in his face was not agreeable, and that if he couldn't look like other people, he had better put his pocket-handkerchief over his head. Mr. Parks, with great submission, pledged himself to do so, if again required, and John Willet, turning to Solomon, desired him to proceed. After waiting until a violent gust of wind and rain, which seemed to shake even that sturdy house to its foundation, had passed away, the little man complied. "'Never tell me that it was my fancy, or that it was any other sound which I mistook for that I tell you of. I heard the wind whistle through the arches of the church. I heard the steeple strain and creak. I heard the rain as it came driving against the walls. I felt the bells shake. I saw the rope sway to and fro. And I heard that voice. What did it say? asked Tom Cobb. I don't know what. I don't know that it spoke. 
it gave a kind of cry, as any one of us might do if something dreadful followed us in a dream and came upon us unawares. And then it died off, seeming to pass quite round the church. "'I don't see much in that,' said John, drawing a long breath, and looking round him like a man who felt relieved. "'Perhaps not,' returned his friend. "'But that's not all.' "'What more do you mean to say, sirs, to come?' asked John, pausing in the act of wiping his face upon his apron. "'What are you a-going to tell us of next?' "'What I saw!' "'Saw!' echoed all three, bending forward. "'When I opened the church door to come out,' said the little man, with an expression of face which bore ample testimony to the sincerity of his conviction, "'When I opened the church door to come out, which I did suddenly, for I wanted to get it shut again before another gust of wind came up, they crossed me, so close, that by stretching out my finger I could have touched it, something in the likeness of a man. It was bareheaded to the storm. It turned its face without stopping, and fixed its eyes on mine.' It was a ghost, a spirit. Whose? they all cried together. In the excess of his emotion, for he fell back trembling in his chair, and waved his hand as if entreating them to question him no further, his answer was lost on all but old John Willet, who happened to be seated close beside him. Who? cried Parks and Tom Cobb, looking eagerly by turns at Solomon Daisy and Mr. Willet. "'Who was it?' "'Gentlemen,' said Mr. Willet, after a long pause, "'you needn't ask. The likeness of a murdered man. This is the nineteenth of March.' A profound silence ensued. "'If—' "'You'll take my advice,' said John. "'We had better, one and all, keep this a secret. "'Such tales would not be liked at the Warren. "'Let us keep it to ourselves, for the present time at all events, "'or we may get into trouble, and Solomon may lose his place. "'Whether it was really as he says, or whether it wasn't, is no matter. Right or wrong, nobody would believe him. As to the probabilities, I don't myself think, said Mr. Willet, eyeing the corners of the room in a manner which showed that, like some other philosophers, he was not quite easy in his theory, that a ghost as had been a man of sense in his lifetime would be out of walking in such weather. I only know that I wouldn't, if I was one. But this heretical doctrine was strongly opposed by the other three, who quoted a great many precedents to show that bad weather was the very time for such appearances, and Mr. Parks, who had had a ghost in his family by the mother's side, argued the matter with so much ingenuity and force of illustration that John was only saved from having to retract his opinion by the opportune appearance of supper to which they applied themselves with a dreadful relish. 
even Solomon Daisy himself, by dint of the elevating influences of fire, lights, brandy, and good company, so far recovered as to handle his knife and fork in a highly creditable manner, and to display a capacity both of eating and drinking such as banished all fear of his having sustained any lasting injury from his fright. Supper done, they crowded round the fire again, and, as is common on such occasions, propounded all manner of leading questions calculated to surround the story with new horrors and surprises. But Solomon Daisy, notwithstanding these temptations, adhered so steadily to his original account, and repeated it so often, with such slight variations, and with such solemn asseverations of its truth and reality, that his hearers were, with good reason, more astonished than at first. As he took John Willet's view of the matter in regard to the propriety of not bruting the tale abroad, unless the spirit should appear to him again, in which case it would be necessary to take immediate counsel with the clergyman, it was solemnly resolved that it should be hushed up and kept quiet. And, as most men like to have a secret to tell which may exalt their own importance, they arrived at this conclusion with perfect unanimity. As it was by this time growing late, and was long past their usual hour of separating, the cronies parted for the night. Solomon Daisy, with a fresh candle in his lantern, repaired homewards under the escort of Long Phil Parks and Mr. Cobb, who were rather more nervous than himself. Mr. Willet, after seeing them to the door, returned to collect his thoughts with the assistance of the boiler, and to listen to the storm of wind and rain, which had not yet abated one jot of its fury. End of chapter 33